Oyez, oyez, oyez. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the land, whose very purpose is to protect their rights and uphold the Constitution, yet which now stands accused of stripping those rights away. win for religious liberty as the High Court ruled in favor of a former high school football coach named Joe Kennedy, who was placed on leave by a Washington school district reciting a prayer at the 50-yard line. U.S. Supreme Court ruling saying that private religious schools cannot be excluded from a program that pays tuition for students in more rural areas. It returned the constitutional right to an abortion. It reverses Roe v. Wade. Welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs shaping our world. One issue that we come back to often is religious freedom. In the last month, a series of decisions by the Supreme Court have some celebrating and others lamenting. The court has played a critical role in discerning what religious freedom looks like in different contexts, from public school classrooms to private spheres like our bedrooms. This month, a new conservative majority upended long-standing precedents, generating a wave of marches and protests. The overturning of Roe provoked the strongest reaction, overshadowing the other decisions that also marked historic reversals of long-held constitutional standards. But the level of fear and rage displayed in the streets, on signs, at marches, and on social media often included references to religion. Amidst the political discord and rhetoric, a rise in hate crimes. Police say someone sprayed graffiti and set a small fire at a church this morning. It happened at the St. John Newman Catholic FBI Community is investigating Church. After pro-abortion extremists torched a pro-life Colorado pregnancy center, leaving behind graffiti that says, if abortions aren't safe, neither are you. According to media reports, anti-abortion pregnancy centers in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Oregon reported threats, vandalism, and graffiti since Roe was overturned. Four days after the ruling, a group of national faith leaders organized a multi-faith service to lament the historic decision. We come together tonight across faiths and across race and across place. Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Sikh, Black, Latinx, Asian, white, from coast to coast we gather. There is compassion, there is solidarity and dignity and power in this space right now. Because we are united in our values, no matter how we pray or where we come from. Together, we lament as a diverse and united community of faith at a moment of deep injustice and inequity. That's Reverend Jennifer Butler, the founder of Faith in Public Life. That's a network of 50,000 faith leaders around the country. Butler is also the author of Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scriptures as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. For two decades, Butler has sought to expose the impact of the family values agenda by drawing attention to the most impacted, the vulnerable. 
the dismantling of Roe will have a disproportionate impact on Black women, other women of color, people with low incomes, immigrants, and the LGBTQ community. And that was echoed by Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, who also spoke, referencing stories from the Old Testament. When the Israelites were freed from enslavement and had the opportunity to create a new society built in justice, they were told again and again and again to care for the widow and the orphan and the stranger. Reminder that some people are going to be more vulnerable. We already know that restricting abortion access disproportionately impacts people who are already marginalized in our society. During the multi-faith service, most shared scripture readings and reflected on their own grief. I have been a crestfallen, brokenhearted, angry woman. In this time when so much of the scaffolding of civil rights, of human rights, of justice have been um, shattered, I'm, I'm mourning, I'm grieving. That's Reverend Jackie Lewis. She's senior minister at the Middle Collegiate Church in New York. She's also the author of Fierce Love. She called those gathered to turn their grief instead to love. We who believe in love, who believe in freedom, understand, I think, that the holy speaks to us in different vocabularies and speaks love in different languages. So in a land that says we believe in religious freedom, this issue of whether or not a person has the right to have an abortion does not belong to the Supreme Court. Lewis and others also named one particular threat, a religious political ideology that they say exists within the Christian tradition. So-called white Christianity, white evangelical Christianity, wanting to impose its set of values on this whole nation. In some sanctuaries, there was celebration about all of the court's rulings that related to religion and Roe. The reason we had so many overreaching regulations in our nation is because the church complied. The church is supposed to direct the government. That's Colorado Congresswoman Laura Bobart. She's speaking from the altar at the Cornerstone Christian Center in Basalt, Colorado. Bobart rose to prominence as an early and strong supporter of Donald Trump. She also identified as a patriot in the QAnon conspiracy movement. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk that's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like what they say it does. Bobart is a rising star among the Make America Great Again wing of the Republican Party. Her political agenda rests on a narrowly cast story about the founders of the country. Since the 1980s, issue advocacy organizations affiliated with the conservative religious movements opposed to Roe v. Wade have sought to reframe the nation's founding fathers as the architects of a Christian nation blessed and protected by a divine creator from which all rights flow. And then there are those on the other side who lean heavily into events to craft a very different story, one that suggests the nation was to be wholly secular. But the truth, according to Purdue University historian Frank Lambert, is far more complex. We begin this week taking a little trip into our archives. 
Let's take a listen to a conversation between our founder and my predecessor, Maureen Fiedler, and Lambert. In addition to teaching, he's the author of several books about the role of religion during the nation's founding and religious liberty. Welcome to Interfaith Voices, Frank Lambert. Thank you, Maureen. It's good to be here. Now, first, you make an interesting distinction in your book that we rarely hear about. You distinguish two groups, those you call the planters, which would be the early colonists like the New England Puritans, the Chesapeake Anglicans, and the Pennsylvania Quakers. And then there are the founders, that generation of men who declared independence and wrote the Constitution of the United States. So, But let's begin with the planters. The model they left was that of an established church. Did they come here as planters to separate religion and government? They did not come to separate religion and government, but they did come to plant what they considered to be the correct form of Christianity. They thought that the state church, the Church of England, uh, was not rooted in biblical principles, or at least the church had abandoned those principles. So the experiment of a city on the hill, as John Winthrop called it, was to establish a church and a state that conformed to the principles of the Bible, of the New Testament. So they really wanted to establish just a different kind of church, one that was more in keeping with their vision. Even more than that, they wanted to establish a Christian commonwealth. And we see that in their founding documents. In 1639, the first constitution in British North America, the uh, Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, really stated the intent of the Puritans in founding a Christian colony. The purpose of it was, quote, to maintain and preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we now profess. And the authority cited was the rule of the word of God. So if one is to establish a Christian uh, commonwealth or state, those two elements, I think, must be present. And that is the purpose is a divine purpose to uh, further the kingdom of God, and it rests on divine authority or the word of God. Now, not all of the 13 original colonies, however, had this vision. <clears throat> Rhode Island was different, and I believe Maryland was different, right? Rhode Island was different in that uh, Roger Williams was a dissenter from the dissenters. Uh, he left uh, Massachusetts. Uh, he thought that Massachusetts uh, made uh, many uh, eras, including taking the land from uh, Native Americans. So he split off, and he founded Rhode Island on the principle of religious liberty. So did Lord Baltimore in Maryland. Uh, Lord Baltimore was a Catholic, and of course Catholics were under severe pressure and persecution in England. So he founded a colony, Maryland, and very quickly enacted the first act of religious toleration in British North America. Mm. It was very interesting because in much of the rest of Europe, the Catholic Church was just as established a church as the Anglican Church was in Britain. Exactly, but uh, Lord Baltimore and his Catholic followers found themselves in a different position. I mean, now they're, they were in a place that was predominantly Protestant. There were no bishops here. There were, certainly the, the Pope was three or 4,000 miles away, so uh, they had to accommodate to their new situation, and they did so by 
proclaiming uh, religious toleration, not only for themselves, but for all inhabitants of Maryland. Now let's move to the other group, the Founding Fathers, that 18th century generation of men who declared independence and wrote the U.S. Constitution. And you say they evolved a different vision of the role of religion in governance because of two influences, the Enlightenment and the Great Awakening. How so? Their vision was different. Uh, The Great Awakening occurred in the middle of the 18th century, namely in the 1740s, 1750s. It was a religious movement, but it was a protest. It was a protest against even those Puritan churches that had grown formal or cold, and it was an attempt to return the church to a more experiential, spiritual kind of basis. Not many of the founders were directly affected by that, but it changed something very important in this country, and that is religious authority. Because now religious authority, churches, clergymen, are under attack. Now it's the individual, the professing individual, who is at center stage. So by 1776, the fastest-growing sects in British North America are evangelical sects like the Methodist, the Baptist, the Presbyterians. And at the center of those was the individual, the believing individual, the confessing individual, not some hierarchy. The second influence was the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment, in a few words, was a worldview in which human reason supplanted divine revelation as the key to understanding the universe. Now, that does not mean that the founders who embraced the Enlightenment rejected God, rejected uh, religion. They did not. They started with the notion that God created the universe. But God created it in an orderly way according to natural law. And they believed that if they could discern the natural law, they could control nature uh, through science. So in the social realm, they believed that if they used their reason, they could construct a society that protected the natural rights of individuals and would preserve individual liberty. Now, as a result of these influences, would it be fair to say that this generation of founders actually moved us toward what is today called separation of church and state? I think that is a correct view. Uh, And they did so for very specific reasons. What were they trying to do in 1776? Well, of course, in 1776, they were declaring home rule. They were separating from Britain. So the whole project in 1776 was to provide a rationale and to provide evidence for this radical revolutionary act of separation. And so they did that, and we see the the results in the Declaration of Independence. Now, in that document, we see the claim of natural rights. Uh, Natural rights came from God. They're God-given rights that every human being has, the, the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and no governor can take those from people. And Maureen, there's an interesting part of the declaration that I would like to speak to for just a moment because it it speaks directly to this notion of religion. Okay. If you look at the second paragraph, there is the discussion of a covenant 
or a social contract. Now, the Puritans, a hundred years earlier, had spoken in covenantal terms. But there, it was God choosing a people and saying to them, if you obey me, I will protect you and you will be my people. In the Declaration, the covenant is drawn up not by God, but by the people, by the governed. And the governed uh, draws up a covenant with the governors. And the governors are, are of their own choosing. And in that covenant, the governed declare that they will obey the governors only as long as the governors protect their rights and their property. That's a very different kind of covenant. Uh, Perhaps you could call it a secular covenant, but certainly it stands in contrast to the covenant of the Puritans a hundred years earlier. And would it be fair to say that in the Constitution, of course, we have the First Amendment, which talks about no establishment of religion, and you may not uh, inhibit the free exercise of religion. Is that an attempt on their part as well to separate religion from the power of government? Well, it is. Uh, but before the Bill of Rights, uh, you know, let's take a quick look at religion in the Constitution itself. It is largely absent, and that's no accident. And again, it does not suggest that the founders were godless or anti-religion. Most of them were professing Protestants. Most of them uh, were good Christians. But we're talking here about how they viewed the place of religion in the public square. Many of them, by 1787, had gone through bruising battles in state constitutional conventions where religion had been divisive. It would be even more divisive when the project was to create a more perfect union. Now we've got to bring together 13 disparate colonies with all these different religions, all of these different sects. So sectarian religion to the founding fathers threatened this more perfect union. So in essence, they said, we really don't want religion and the federal government to mix. And so they left religion out. The only place you're going to see religion in the U.S. Constitution is in the negative. There shall be no religious test as a qualification for office. And that's it. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at Interfaith Radio. 
interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Before the break, Maureen Fiedler was speaking with historian Frank Lambert. He's the author of several books, including The Founding Fathers and the Place of Religion in America. Let's get back to the conversation. So the founders, in your view, didn't intend to found a quote-unquote, Christian nation? Oh, I think not. Not at all. That was not the project of 1787. And I think they saw the difference between state and nation. They were creating a state, a body politic. But they were not interested in creating a Christian state. At the same time, they saw an important place for religion in the nation. They saw it uh, religion as promoting morality. And to them, morality was central to Republican virtue. Yet there was a poll in 2007, which I'm sure you're aware of, that found that 65% of Americans believe that the nation's founders intended the U.S. to be a Christian nation. What do you suppose folks that say that mean by that phrase? Uh, Many times when people look at the founding of the nation, and in particular the ideas of the founding fathers, They assign to the founders sentiments, ideas, principles that really they want, that is, the people in in the present want to validate their own agendas. But if you go back and look at what the founders said, what they did within context, I cannot see any basis for Mm -hmm. uh, making the case that that they were interested in founding a a Christian commonwealth. On the other hand, they weren't trying to – uh, create a, an atheistic uh, commonwealth either. I mean, religion was not a part of what they were doing in 1787. If we look around, though, we often seem like we're a Christian nation, like Christians make up, you know, vast majority of the population. There are Bible verses etched on stone all over federal buildings and monuments. That sounds very Christian to a lot of people. Well, it does sound Christian to a lot of people, uh, but when you talk about the founders' vision of religion in the nation, they did not see religion as being a part of the state. They did not see the state as supporting religion explicitly, but that certainly does not mean that they thought religion had no role in the nation. They thought it did. Now, let's take a look at a couple specific founders, and one of the most interesting, I think, is Thomas Jefferson, who, of course, wrote the Declaration of Independence. And he was raised as an Anglican, but he was later drawn to deism. And I wondered if you could say, what is deism, and how did it influence his view of religion and government? The short answer is that deism is the religion of the Enlightenment. And the idea is that God created the natural order and then stepped aside. That is, that God does not micromanage his creation. Uh, He leaves that up to uh, his creatures. So that was his view. 
And then, of course, there's this wonderful story of the Jefferson Bible where yes. he actually cut out certain parts. Do you want Can to- you imagine that, that happening uh, uh, today by a president in the White House? Actually, he did that in the White House. But it comes from his notion that reason should be primary in trying to understand the world and, and, and how it works. So when he took the razor of reason to the Bible, he eliminated the entire Old Testament because he thought that it talked about a supernatural, even tyrannical God who seemed to govern by whimsy. Next, he eliminated Paul. He did not like Paul and thought that (laughs) Paul, uh, again, was given too much to supernaturalism, miracles, you know, the Damascus Road experience and what have you. So anyway, he's now down to essentially the four Gospels. He then cut out, literally cut out, every suggestion of miracle and every suggestion that ran against Jefferson's understanding of the natural order. What he was left with were the morals of Jesus. A very thin book. A A very thin book, indeed, yes. Of course, we can't look at all of the founders, but I wanted to at least take a glimpse at good old Ben Franklin. And yes. what was his view of religion's place in government? And, and there are some who maintain that he was an atheist, and I wondered if there's any truth to that. There's absolutely no truth, and the reason I say that without hesitation is that he left a creed, and the first words in the creed is, I believe in one God. Now, true, he went on to say, and not much more. Uh, and he spoke directly about the divinity of Jesus, and he doubted it, and he said he was an old man and didn't have time to study it, but figured that he very soon would find out firsthand. But he was a product of the Enlightenment. He was a scientist. He believed that the essence of religion was morality, and that's what he preached. Mm. And his view of religion and government would have been a separation of the two? Well, a separation of the two, but when we talk about separation of church and state, too often we talk about the high wall that Thomas Jefferson used as a metaphor. Uh, Franklin would not have used a high wall. For example, at the uh, Constitutional Convention, he actually advocated at one point that uh, the delegates begin sessions with prayer. It was rejected. In fact, in a, in a footnote on his copy, he said only three or four delegates even thought it was an interesting idea, and it was tabled, so there was no opening of prayer. Now, as we said in the beginning, people like to project their own values onto the founders, reading sure. into them whatever they want. And I wonder, what do liberals most often get wrong, and what do conservatives most often get wrong? Well, I think that liberals uh, sometimes want to turn all of the founders into deists. Uh, or turn them all into secularist. They want to remove any hint of religion from their proceedings. And I think that's inaccurate. The founders believed in God as creator. The founders believed in providence, albeit they thought that human beings were important instruments of providence. They certainly believed in, uh, in Christian morality. So I think it's wrong to, uh, to read back that here were secularists who had no interest, no religious convictions, and wanted to have nothing to do with religion. I think that's a, a false reading. As far as conservatives, they want to do the opposite. They want to turn the, uh, uh, the founding fathers into uh, Bible-thumping evangelicals, uh, that these were all people who were 
firm believers in uh, Jesus Christ, and now I'm quoting a, a, a person who cited that uh, view recently, that George Washington would be uh, a, a member of the religious right today. I think that's wrong. Uh, most of them, in fact, were not evangelicals. Some were deists, some, most were rationalists, some were members of the Church of England, with all that that means. Frank, thanks so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure, Maureen. Purdue University historian Frank Lambert. He's the author of several books about the role of religion during the nation's founding and religious liberty. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices, 